Welcome back, everybody, to the Three Rivers Talk Show. This is your host, Drew Von Sayo, set to bring you the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pittsburgh Pirates. Starting today with the Pittsburgh Pirates, as O'Neill Cruz has been optioned to AAA Indianapolis. Now, this is a move that a lot of the fans, including myself, were hoping did not happen. Many of us wanting to see Cruz on the opening day roster, particularly at the shortstop position. However, when you look at the current economic structure of the game of baseball, even with the new labor agreement, the decision to option O'Neill Cruz makes sense. So, as I said, I know a lot of fans are frustrated about this. A lot of fans wanted Cruz to start on the opening day roster. However, the way that the current service time schedule is set up in the CBA is that players will receive an extra year of service time with their current team if they spend the first few weeks of the season down in the minor leagues. So with O'Neill Cruz's current contract, if he started the season on the opening day roster, he would be able to become a free agent at the conclusion of the 2029 season rather 2028. If the Pirates optioned him like they did and keep him in the minor leagues for a few few weeks, then he would become a free agent at the end of the 2029 season. So they are able to get an extra year of control over O'Neill Cruz before he becomes a free agent by delaying when he permanently becomes a part of the big league ball club. O'Neill Cruz, let me remind you, will be a crucial piece for the Pirates in 2022. There is no question of whether or not he will come up to Pittsburgh. It's a matter of when. When you hear this discussion, the phrase that comes to mind is Super 2. And they call it Super 2 because it's generally about two weeks that the player has to wait down in the minor leagues before coming up and being a part of the big league ball club to manipulate that service time stipulation. So O'Neill Cruz only having to stay in AAA Indianapolis for a minimum of two weeks before he gets that extra year of team control to stay with the Pirates one season longer. Now, personally, I think O'Neill Cruz will stay in AAA Indianapolis for longer than two weeks just because the Pirates have not been able to get him many at-bats above A last season. They were rushing him to the big leagues to have him make his debut. He had just a handful of at-bats in AAA Indianapolis and then got promoted to Pittsburgh, made his debut, had just a few at-bats in the three to seven range for Cruz in terms of at-bats, had them in Pittsburgh, and is now going to go to AAA Indianapolis to really solidify himself at the plate. Now, I know what you're thinking. O'Neill Cruz had several home runs, well I shouldn't say several, right around three home runs in spring training this past year, just a few weeks ago for that matter, and so you may be thinking, well if he had three home runs in spring training in limited opportunities, what more does he have to prove? There's nothing more that O'Neill Cruz has to prove to the Pirates organization. They know he can hit, they know he, they ha- he has the power, they know what he can do, It's more so the fact of getting him developmental at-bats because the jump from AA to the MLB is a huge jump. And it's something that not everybody is able to do in a matter of a year or even a shorter time frame. You figure it was October when O'Neill Cruz, rather September, when O'Neill Cruz went from AA to AAA and then just a short time later, got promoted to Pittsburgh. So that was right around six months ago. That's not an easy jump to make, especially with the offseason and the lockout delaying things even further. So it makes sense as to why O'Neill Cruz is going to be getting some developmental at-bats in Tripway Indianapolis just to ensure that he is ready to go for the Pirates for much of this season. I would much rather have O'Neill Cruz start the season in AAA Indianapolis, 
be there for a few weeks, give the Pirates an extra year of team control over him, and then have him come up and mash 20 home runs and hit for 290, rather than him start the season in Pittsburgh, lose that extra year of team control, have him only hitting 230 and striking out constantly at the plate because he's always trying to swing for the fences. I mean, O'Neill Cruz, his swing is so effortless, so when he may not be trying to swing for the fences, it leaves the ballpark. But again, that often happens with power hitters is that they know they have such an effortless swing, and then they start trying to be aggressive on everything and really mash the baseball, and then as a result, ultimately jack up their strikeout rate, which is something that no baseball player wants to have happen to them. Now, a little bit of bad news for the Pirates is that Brian Reynolds' trade rumors are picking up once again. And when I say picking up, more so coming to fruition. Reported yesterday by Bob Nightingale that the San Diego Padres have been in talks with the Pirates this spring training for Brian Reynolds. Chris Paddock, a name that is being brought up in those discussions. And along with top prospects in the Padres organization. Now, just because a team engages in those talks doesn't necessarily mean that a trade is going to happen. The Padres could have very simply been calling the Pirates to figure out what the price tag is for them to try and acquire Brian Reynolds, Ben Charrington giving the Padres an idea of what it would take, and going from there with the discussions. Of course, Ryan Weathers, one of the other young pitchers in the Padres organization being mentioned, it doesn't necessarily guarantee, again, that Brian Reynolds is going to get dealt. I hope to the Lord and Savior that Brian Reynolds does not get dealt. The Pirates are not in a position to deal him. He is a cornerstone of this franchise moving forward, somebody that should be locked up on an extension. And to be quite honest, I personally only think that this is just now being reported because of the Pirates and Brian Reynolds going to arbitration with a $650,000 difference in their price tags. Reynolds wanting $4.9 million, the Pirates wanting to offer him four and a quarter million. Personally, again, I think that's just the only reason why these rumors are coming to life right now because of Reynolds going to arbitration and any time a player goes to arbitration it's rumored that their relationship with the team is suffering and going on a decline that doesn't necessarily mean anything just because a player goes to arbitration with the team that is employing them just means that there's a difference in what they expect to be paid versus what the team wants to pay them and this happens all the time Players go to arbitration one year and then turn around the next year and sign a long-term extension. It's part of the game of baseball. It's very common. Reynolds going to arbitration is nothing to worry about. Would I have loved to see the Pirates give Brian Reynolds what he wants? Absolutely. The man 100% deserves it. He is, along with Key Brian Hayes and O'Neill Cruz, the next faces of this Pirates franchise, assuming all three of them stay in Pittsburgh for the majority of their career. But the Pirates and Reynolds going to arbitration is absolutely nothing to worry about. Now, if the arbitration process takes a long time and they struggle to come to an agreement, or if extension talks do not really start to pick up soon, or even worse, trade talks increase, then we can worry about pressing the panic button. But until then, nothing is set in stone with a trade. Rumors swirl around all the time, again in part because of Reynolds going to arbitration, and until something becomes much more prevalent, there is no reason to panic about the Brian Reynolds rumors. Now, speaking of the Pirates outfielders, one that has really came to life and in a way surprised me over the course of spring training thus far is Greg Allen. And when the Pirates signed Greg Allen, claimed him off of waivers from the New York Yankees, I was very critical of this decision because Greg Allen had shown next to nothing at the plate. He was a strong defender, 
But that was very much the way of thinking for Ben Charrington, was to go out and acquire a strong defender who didn't necessarily have a strong bat that could contribute runs for the Pirates. And it was frustrating to see that happen once again, that the Pirates went out and brought in Greg Allen. But he has very much turned some heads over the course of this spring training. And I will be the first to admit, he has turned my head and what I think of him as a baseball player. He is one of the most consistent hitters that the Pirates have seen over the course of this spring training season. 250 hitter, two home runs, a handful of RBIs in just 16 at-bats. Now, again, I understand it's spring training. I understand that it's a very small sample size, but Greg Allen is turning into a serviceable outfielder, third outfielder for the Pirates. So if they want to move Gamble over to right and put Greg Allen in left, they can do it. If they want to keep Gamble in left and put Greg Allen in right, then that's fine. That works too. Greg Allen, again, I said he's turning heads. He has turned my head. I am very much content with Greg Allen being on the opening day roster. Would I prefer him to be the fourth outfielder and the Pirates have went out and signed somebody or at the very least, or even not at the very least, but went out and possibly traded for a major league outfielder that had a hefty contract and in the process bought a prospect? Absolutely. And it's something again that Ben Harrington maybe will consider doing when the team is in a much better position to succeed and be successful, but we're not seeing that right now. So again, I think Greg Allen can certainly do the job as the team's third outfielder, and then whoever the fourth outfielder is, time will only tell. Bly Madras is having a very strong spring training. Of course, the team went out yesterday and brought in Josh Van Meter from the Arizona Diamondbacks, designating Jared Oliva for assignment in the process. So Josh Van Meter, typically an infielder, has kind of transitioned into a utility player to speak, and so I would expect him to be more so involved in the outfield mix rather than the infield because the Pirates already have a bit of a logjam in the infield. So if Josh Van Meter beats out Anthony Alford for the fourth outfield spot, so be it. If Van Meter comes in and doesn't contribute, and it is Anthony Alford, certainly not going to be my optimal strategy to have Alford as the fourth outfielder, but it certainly could be worse than Alford. Now, I know Alford is struggling at the plate so far in spring training, but as I've said before with players like Greg Allen and even O'Neill Cruz, small sample sizes do not mean anything, whether it is over the course of a successful small sample size or a poor small sample size. Those small sample sizes only offer a glimpse of what a player can contribute. Players all the time will have very small sample sizes that are making them look like they're going to turn into MVP caliber players. And then over the longevity of a month, a season, a career, they're worthless. And then you have, you have players who in that small sample size look to be a huge bust and then over the longevity of that same season, that month, that career, whatever it may be, they turn into a very serviceable player. So just because a small sample size happens in spring training doesn't necessarily mean one way or the other that somebody is going to be good or bad. It certainly can provide indications, but just because those indications are there doesn't guarantee anything. And... I know the other day I talked about Jose Quintana, JT Brubaker, as pitchers that needed to get their act together. And again, they have small sample sizes as well. So, yes, it's concerning over the course of those small sample sizes that they haven't been able to really pull it together. But there's plenty of time for them to turn it around. I mean, just today, Jose, Jose Quintana pitching against the Toronto Blue Jays, going four innings, giving up just two earned runs. 
not the optimal situation for Jose Quintana, but when you look at the way his previous outings have gone this spring training, it's certainly a step in the right direction for him and for the organization that he can truly bounce back. So you have to weigh in the good, the bad, everything in between, and then see how it plays out over the longevity of spring training, the longevity of a month, a season, and then ultimately decide from there what the evaluation of a player is, whether or not they were serviceable for the organization. You are listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show when we return discussing Pittsburgh Steelers football in terms of running backs to possibly target in the 2022 NFL Draft, when to target them, the thought of Carson Strong possibly being overlooked as a quarterback option for the Steelers, and the debate over Tyron Matthew and whether or not he should truly come to Pittsburgh coming up next here on the Three Rivers Talk Show. And we're back here on the Three Rivers Talk Show looking at the Pittsburgh Steelers. As I mentioned on Monday in regards to the mock draft that I completed, the Steelers are possibly considering 
targeting a running back in either day two or day three of the draft. As a result of Najee Harris needing a complimentary running back, and because those who were behind him last season, Kalen Balaj, Benny Snell, not necessarily performing up to par. Now, there are a handful of very talented running backs in this draft, not necessarily as talented as Najee Harris was coming out of Alabama, Travis Etienne out of Clemson, but there are still some talented running backs that the Steelers could possibly consider giving a look on either day two or day three. Those being Brees Hall out of Iowa State, listed as the number one running back in this upcoming draft class. Behind him, Kenneth Walker III out of Michigan State, Isaiah Spiller from Texas A&M, James Cook from Georgia, and Kyron Williams from Notre Dame. Now, all of these guys, again, are either day two or day three picks. The first three, I would say, more likely to go on day two in either the second or the third round. Those being Brees Hall, Kenneth Walker III, and Isaiah Spiller. James Cook and Kyron Williams, more likely to go early on day three in round four. Now, I'm giving those timelines as to when they could possibly go in the draft because there is not a single running back in this draft that the Steelers should even consider taking in round one. Not that they would take a running back in the first round in back-to-back -back seasons, but it's certainly an option, and we've seen teams make illogical decisions like that where they draft a player in the same position one year that they just drafted another player in that same position the previous year. And so I had mentioned that because the Steelers, they have too many needs to even consider taking a running back round one, much less the talent pool doesn't necessarily warrant a running back to be taken in the first round anyways. Now, when they take a running back, and again, this is a stipulation of if they do, I personally see the, the Steelers taking a running back either later in day two or early day three. And that being because of all of the needs. They still have to address the offensive line at some point in this draft. They have to address the defensive line quarterback as well because Kevin Colbert is not going to go out with only bringing in Mitch Trubisky. He's certainly not going to do so. So you've got those three positions, wide receiver in the mix because the Steelers only having three wide receivers in their room right now, Claypool, Johnson, and Olszewski. So those three, as I said before, aren't going to be able to handle all the snaps this season and that's with a huge risk that all three of them would be able to even play every game this season. Because, let's be real here, injuries do happen. So, you've got four positions. Offensive line, defensive line, wide receiver, quarterback, that the Steelers are really going to have to put emphasis on in this draft. And that doesn't even include other positions such as cornerback, safety, linebacker. I mean, you name it, you could find an argument one way or the other that the Steelers could use some help there. And when you've been as successful as the Steelers have been for going on 20 years, then that's to be expected, where you have that year or two where you have to kind of reload and get ready to fire down the road. And this year, along with probably next year, maybe even the year after, the Steelers are going to be in that boat. They can still certainly compete for the playoffs, but they are going to be in that boat of constantly having to adjust and reconfigure how they're going to bolster their roster in all areas to have as well-rounded of a roster as they can. So, again, personally, if it were me, I would be focusing in on Kenneth Walker III out of Michigan State. First of all, because he tore Pitt to shreds in the Peach Bowl, and Pitt's defense was a very strong defense this past season under Coach Narduzzi, and Kenneth Walker 
really gave the Panthers a handful to deal with. Walker, just 5'9", 211 pounds, but when you're a running back, only being 5'9", may help him, especially when he's trying to weave through offensive linemen and defensive linemen that are 6'5", 6'6", maybe even 6'7". And so that shorter frame in terms of height is going to help him weave in and out of that traffic. And he is somebody that just gets the ball and goes with it. He's not the Le'Veon Bell where he's going to sit back in the backfield and dance and wait for something to develop. He is going to get the ball, know where the play call is to go, and attack with force. And that's something that I want to see out of Steelers running backs. It's something I think Najee Harris improved on over the course of the season, but can certainly still get better with it. Now, speaking of the draft, this time a different position, one that I have mentioned that the Steelers are going to target is the quarterback position. Carson Strong, kind of labeled as the worst of the best, if you would say that, in terms of the quarterbacks that are projected to go ahead of him in the draft, those being Kenny Pickett, Malik Willis, Matt Corral, Desmond Ritter, and Carson Strong is just kind of being pushed to the side. And Carson Strong, looking at his frame, very similar build to what Ben Roethlisberger brought in with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Carson Strong currently standing in at 6'4", 215 pounds. Ben Roethlisberger was 6'5", right around 240. So Carson Strong a little bit slimmer than what Ben Roethlisberger was, a little bit slimmer than Mason Rudolph because I said the same thing about Mason Rudolph when he was possibly being drafted and ultimately got picked by the Steelers was that he had a similar build to Ben Roethlisberger. And so Carson Strong little bit lighter than Roethlisberger and Rudolph, but at the University of Nevada, Carson Strong has an absolute cannon of an arm and has made some unworldly throws that I just can't believe a quarterback in any caliber of the collegiate level made. Now, don't get me wrong. Carson Strong certainly has his weak spots. Now, my question with Carson Strong was his mobility because Carson Strong, with that build, he is often labeled as, viewed, I should say, as a quarterback that isn't going to be able to move. Especially when you look at him having past surgeries on his right knee, that's going to even decrease mobility more. Mike Tomlin, Kevin Colbert, even Art Rooney II have clearly stated that the Steelers want a mobile quarterback. And I don't necessarily feel like they're going to get that out of Carson Strong. Now, in addition to his cannon of an arm, he's got laser point accuracy. So if the Steelers feel like they can work with the mobility aspect of Carson Strong and keep the cannon of an arm, keep the pinpoint accuracy, you may see them wait to take a quarterback later in the draft and go out there and build up the wide receiver core, offensive line, defensive line, maybe even running back before going out and bringing in a quarterback. And if you ask the New England Patriots, you don't necessarily have to find your franchise quarterback in the first round. Certainly, as you get further and further into the draft, the odds of finding a franchise quarterback decrease significantly, but nothing is out of the woods, especially when Tom Brady got drafted in the sixth round of the 2000 NFL draft. So, again, I can certainly look more into Carson Strong as a quarterback, break down the tape a lot more than a little glimpse of what I've done so far, but Carson Strong certainly making the quarterback situation interesting for the Steelers. Now, my gut feeling is still telling me that they're going to draft somebody in either the first or the second round, whether it be Pickett, Corral, Ritter. I don't necessarily see them getting Malik Willis because all of the teams 
above the Steelers in the first round, really like Malik Willis. And again, as I've said before, Malik Willis to me is a poor man's Lamar Jackson. And so if another team wants to take a flyer on that and try to develop the arm, go for it. I don't think the Steelers are going to reach that far for him, especially when you look at mock drafts done by professional draft analysts, and they have Malik Willis going in the top six to somebody like the Lions or the Giants. The Steelers aren't going to be willing to give up the capital to move up that far into the draft. And you might be saying, well, it's only 12 spots if he goes six overall, rather 14. If he goes six overall, the Steelers have the 20th pick. That's only 14 spots they have to move up. But in the first round of a draft, teams moving up are only going to do so to take a quarterback, and every team's going to know that, so they're going to jack up the asking price of the pick that the team is trying to trade up and get. Now, the last topic today for the Steelers football is Tyron Matthew. A lot of the Steelers fan base liking the idea of going out and bringing in Tyron Matthew to play safety alongside Minka Fitzpatrick. Now, there are a lot of question marks about Tyron Matthew and his play. I'm not going to sit here and get into them all because, quite honestly, you could be here all day talking about, well, there's this question mark and there's that question mark. What I am going to do is figure out whether or not Tyron Matthew is somebody that should be a good fit for the Steelers organization as a whole. Now, Tyron Matthew certainly having the work ethic to become a Pittsburgh Steeler, very elite safety at times with Kansas City. However, he has also been very poor in certain moments. And I would be lying if I said I wasn't concerned about Tyron Matthew from the perspective that nobody has signed him yet. If he truly was as elite of a safety as what he had been at one time, why would nobody have signed him by now? There are reasons why he's still a free agent. And so it could even be as simple as him wanting to wait until the last possible decision to see which team is going to give him the best offer, could possibly be hoping that it turns into a bidding war. Only time will tell. But I think to this day that there is a reason why teams have not been aggressive and gone out and made sure that they have been able to get him. If the Steelers can bring him in for the right price, I'm certainly content with them doing so. And I would love to see Matthew lining up next to Minka Fitzpatrick. I think he would be a great addition to the Steelers. Certainly be an upgrade over Terrell Edmonds. Not that that is all that hard of a feat to accomplish. But he would be an upgrade over Edmonds. Provide the Steelers with another elite threat in the secondary. And make their defense even more dangerous than it currently is. And of course that can be bolstered and made even more dangerous through the draft as well. And looking back at the mock draft on Monday, while I didn't have the Steelers drafting a safety, I had them grabbing Dakobe Durant out of South Carolina State. And again, that's to help bolster the secondary. So again, I think the Steelers are really going to have to figure out how to either get corners, safeties, primarily both, either in free agency or in the draft, and if they can get Tyron Matthew, go out and grab him, but again, only do so for the right price. Don't go out and overpay Tyron Matthew just because of the name and what he's been able to do in the past. If he's somebody that you think is going to be able to be successful for you as an organization next year and down the line, find a reasonable dollar amount to pay him, but don't go out and overpay him and on the same note, you can't lowball him either because if you lowball him, then he's just going to get frustrated and the agent's going to turn you away and say that they'll go in another direction. So the story in regards to Tyron Matthew will continue. If by some chance he does become a Pittsburgh Steeler, you will certainly know about it as soon as the next show comes about. Knowing my luck, that would take place in the middle of the week when the Steelers would sign him and then it would have to wait a few days to discuss it on the show, but we'll see what happens. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show 
when we return, discussing today's final segment, looking at the return of Jason Zucker against his former team, and then ultimately getting hurt again, the Penguins having to find a way to beat Shesterkin and the Rangers, and now with the return of Zucker before the injury, Brian Rust back with Crosby on the first line here on the Three Rivers Talk Show. And we're back here for today's final segment of the Three Rivers Talk Show. Looking at the Pittsburgh Penguins, as I mentioned before the break, Jason Zucker returned to the lineup last night for Pittsburgh, skating on the second line with Evgeny Malkin, Ricard Raquel, and ultimately ended up getting hurt once again in the first game back against his former team. Now, Jason Zucker was acquired by the Penguins in the at the 2020 trade deadline, just before everything got shut down last season, the divisions based upon geographic location. So Pittsburgh never played Minnesota, and this was the Penguins' first trip back to Mi Minneapolis since before the pandemic. So Zucker finally getting honored by his former team and then unfortunately going out and getting hurt once again. And not to say that Zucker can control when he gets hurt, if he gets hurt. I'm not going there by any means. But this dude can just not catch a break. I mean, he was out for 25, maybe 30 games 
with that core muscular injury, steps back into the lineup one night, and then gets hurt once again. He just, he can't catch a break. And it's unfortunate for the Penguins because he is such an important piece of that second line, skating with Evgeny Malkin. The Penguins were finally able to get Brian Rust back on the top line with Sidney Crosby, slide Ricard Raquel over to Malkin's right wing. And now, as a result, you're probably going to see Raquel go back to the left and Brian Rust get dropped down on the chance that Jason Zucker is out for a long period of time once again. And that's why I'm saying it hurts the Penguins, because if Zucker's not there, I mentioned what the changes would be, but then Evan Rodriguez would have to go back on the top line for the Penguins. And for the past month, if not two months, Evan Rodriguez has not been the same player that he once was for Pittsburgh early in the season. Very dominant, looked to be somebody that the Penguins were going to be reliant upon over the course of the full 82-game season and is now kind of dropping off and returning to his older form and explaining why he bounced around the league so much prior to this season. And it's that inconsistency that's really hurting Evan Rodriguez. It's hurting not only himself, but also the Penguins as a whole, and he's got to find a way to get out of it. Now, of course, he'll get more opportunities on the top line with Zucker probably being out for at least a game, if not longer. And so now, Rodriguez will be able to work with Crosby, work with Gensel, and get those better chances that he won't necessarily get on the third line with Chris, or Jeff Carter and Kasperi Kapanen. So, Rodriguez really getting redemption, if you think about it. And when Zucker was out there last night against the Minnesota Wild, he looked very comfortable in that first game back, of course, this being prior to the injury. But you could tell right away he still had that same chemistry with Evgeny Malkin, the two of them working wonders, of course, Malkin and Raquel have gelled together very nicely. Those two at this point are inseparable, whether it's Raquel on the right or Raquel on the left. He's not leaving the second line. And that's why I'm saying it's such a big loss for the Penguins if Zucker is out longer term again. Because, first of all, he just came back, but then it throws everything off, and you then have to figure out how to fill either Malkin's one wing or Crosby's one wing. And the game plan at this point looking to be like Rust moving down once again and Rodriguez back to the top line. So it's just, again, it's so unfortunate for Zucker and for the Penguins that as soon as he returns from one injury, he gets knocked right back down and has to leave the game early. I hope it's nothing serious with Jason Zucker, but at this point you can't really hold your breath because there's so much unknown at this point. Mike Sullivan didn't have very many updates after the game, and that's to be expected, but at this point it's just one of those things where you want the Penguins to fully be healthy, and Zucker's getting to the point where as soon as he comes back, he's getting hurt. Now, as I said in the beginning, it's not Jason Zucker's fault. I mean, he can't control that he gets hurt, but it's the circumstances of him coming back and then getting hurt once again that really complicate things for the Penguins. And... Personally, I don't think Evan Rodriguez is a first-line player. He's somebody that you could maybe get away with in your second line, but he doesn't play well with Malkin. So he has to go down to the third line. Personally, I think that's his best fit. He can skate on the left wing with Jeff Carter, Kasperi Kapanen, something that in past discussions with Mike DeFabo, with Michelle Cricciolo, 
they've brought up that Mike Sullivan refers to Evan Rodriguez as a Swiss Army knife, and he's essentially a utility player for the game of hockey. He can play center, he can play right wing, he can play left wing. And that versatility is really helping him stick on this Penguins roster because they can use him anywhere, and when one player goes down, all he has to do is slide in and take their spot. And then the Penguins can adjust as necessary. So Rodriguez, again, as I said, he's not a first-line player by any means. Arguably, maybe not even a second-line player, but he can certainly improve his value to get to that point. And I think if he does get to that point, then the Penguins are still going to keep him on the third line, given that everybody is healthy, just to really stress the importance of that third line. Because as I've said before many times, three lines at this in this day and age for hockey are almost a must. And a fourth line is something additional that if you can have a successful fourth line, you're going to be in an even better position to succeed. So if Rodriguez can figure things out on the third line and bolster Jeff Carter, bolster Kasperi Kapanen, things are going to work out for him, the third line, and the team all in the long run as the Penguins make a push over the course of this final month of the season before heading into the Stanley Cup playoffs. Now, I mentioned before the break that the Penguins, they have to find a way to beat the New York Rangers and particularly Igor Shesterkin. Because the past two times the Penguins have met the Rangers, it just hasn't happened. Now, the last time they met was a much closer and a much more competitive game than the time before that. This game taking place Tuesday night in Pittsburgh. The Penguins losing by a score of 3-2. to two. However, the Penguins only had 24 shots on goal. Now, the Rangers having 26, so in that regard, it's not all that much of a differential in terms of saying, oh, they got outshot. But 24 shots needs to become more. And they have to figure out a way to be able to beat Igor Shesterkin more consistently because the Penguins have only scored three goals past him over the last two games. And this is, as I've said, even as recent as Monday. This is your first round playoff matchup. You have to figure out a way to beat Shesterkin. You have to figure out a way to beat the Rangers. Otherwise, it's going to be another one and done. And nobody on the Penguins wants that. None of the fans want that. And Shesterkin has the capability of stealing a series. He played very well against the Penguins Tuesday night at PPG Paints Arena. He played very well against the Penguins last week at Madison Square Garden. And so he is a very solid goaltender. Of course, the Penguins have one in their own of Tristan Jari, but the Rangers are able to find ways to beat Jari. The Penguins haven't consistently done that against Igor Shesterkin. And even if you look back at the third matchup that the Penguins played against the Rangers, the second, rather the first one that was at home, the Penguins only had 20, 26 shots on goal. The Rangers had 27, but the Penguins won that game 1-0. And again, for the Rangers, it was Igor Shesterkin in goal, making 25 saves on 26 shots. The only reason why the Penguins won that game was because Tristan Jari stood on his head and save the day for the team. So the Penguins right now 1-2 and two on the season against the New York Rangers in terms of the season record. They have one more matchup that taking place this coming Thursday on the road again at Madison Square Garden against the Rangers. And the Penguins point blank and simple have to win that game. I understand they'll be coming off of two tough games on the road and at home against Colorado. But... The Penguins have to find a way to win that game. If the Rangers take three of four this regular season from the Penguins, first of all, it's going to make things that much more difficult to catch the Rangers and try to get home ice advantage in the first round of the playoffs. But it's going to make things even 
more difficult in the playoffs because the Rangers are going to have home ice advantage as things stand now. They're going to have the momentum of a successful campaign and they're going to have the confidence of beating the Penguins knowing that they did it already three or four times in the regular season and the only time they didn't was when Tristan Jari stood on his head and won a game for the team. So right now, the Penguins are still only a point behind the New York Rangers in the Metropolitan Division standings. The Rangers do have a game in hand over the Penguins, so under the assumption that the Rangers would win that game in hand, they would go three points above the Penguins in terms of level games played. So that game next Thursday at Madison Square Garden is going to be important for Pittsburgh. And I've said that every single time the Penguins have played the Rangers. It's an important game. You've got to set the tone. It's a playoff matchup. Figure it out. Go out there. Find a way to win. The Penguins, they didn't do that the last time. They didn't do it the time before by any means. And now you have to go out there, figure out a way to fight. You think of it like this. Playoff matchup against the Rangers. They take three, rather two of the first three. This is technically game four of the series, if you think of it that way in terms of a playoff series and a best of seven. If the Penguins lose this game and lose the series, season series to the Rangers 3-1, if there was a fifth game, I would not be high on the Penguins whatsoever to come away with winning it and having to win out to advance in the series and move on. And if the same scenario applies in the playoffs, if the Penguins go down 3-1 in the series, you can forget about it at that point. They may be able to pull something out of the rear end in Game 5, get it to 3-2, but there's no way that the Rangers would lose to the Penguins three games in a row for them to take the series. So this 2-2 split against the Rangers in the regular season is going to be of the utmost importance into the playoffs, especially when you would look at it as both teams won a game at home, both teams won a game on the road. And so that would even further heighten the stakes in this series. It would even further make it inter more interesting and really provide that playoff atmosphere that the Penguins are going to need down the stretch, not only against the Rangers, but against other tough teams across the various divisions. I want to thank you all for tuning in on this Friday afternoon. For whatever reason, here on April 1st, we're still getting snow in Bethany, West Virginia. I do want to provide a little bit of an update as the goal is to be back in the main studio on Monday, live on the Bethany Online Radio. I will update Twitter if and when I get a confirmation of that being the case. If not, I will still be posting an episode. It will just be the way that both of these episodes have been over the past week. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show once again. Thank you for tuning in on this Friday afternoon, and be sure to tune in on Monday at 3 o'clock for the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pittsburgh Pirates.